welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masach Bavakama, daf kuf yud, page 110. We have a new Mishnah. We have a new Gemara on the Mishnah. We note that these cases are all kind of intertwined. The same Gemara that, you know, theoretically comes long after the Mishnah that precedes it historically that we just saw, Yerdena, that you just spoke about on the previous daf, is now kind of lining up still with the mission that's upcoming. I feel like there's got to be some like elegance to this besides, uh, um, you know, the observations that we m- meet that we make as we go through Dafyomi. Um, I would like to know if maybe, I don't know, if anybody's ever written about it, if anybody's going to write about it. Um, on the other hand, maybe I find it more interesting than other people do. I, I find it fascinating. Um, and at some point, perhaps I will talk about it at greater length. Okay, here's the Mishnah. So we have here a case where a person robs a convert and then takes an oath, a false oath, meaning says he did not do so. He did not steal from the convert. Then the convert dies. And the robber, right, he's trying to, like, make good on it, whatever. So he's going to pay back the principal. And he's going to pay back the one-fifth fine. And he does it, he pay, he brings that to the Kohanim, and he brings an asham, a, a guilt offering to the to the altar, to the Mizbeach. Why? Because there's a biblical verse in the book of Numbers that says, Vim Because if you have a convert and he doesn't have a family, so he doesn't have any kinsmen, as the word is, right? In leash goel, he doesn't have family to whom restitution can be paid for that guilt of the robber who didn't acknowledge it and deny that he had done so, right? That's exactly what the verse says. When there when there's no family, what happens? You you know you bring them the payment to the kohanim and you bring a guilt offering. The mission continues. So now let's variant on the case. You have a robber who's bringing the money and the guilt offering up to Jerusalem to pay the Kohanim. And he dies, the robber dies before getting there to give the money to the Kohen. So the money is going to be, doesn't go to the Kohanim anymore. It goes to the children, to the robber's children, meaning like a regular inheritance because it had never been, it never left his hands to be, to go atone for him right in the hands of the Kohanim. And the animal that was designated for a Garban Asham for his guilt offering instead is going to be left to grave to, I'm sorry, to graze. We know this category, right? Let it become blemished so that it cannot be sacrificed because it had been designated to be a sacrifice, but he's no longer available to be the guy who's going to bring the sacrifice. And then that animal will be sold, meaning it could be sold for, for work or for food or whatever it is, right? Meaning once it's blemished, there's a more variety of options you could do with it. And that money will then be allocated for nidava, for, for generous um, community offerings uh, in the Beit HaMikdash. Now what happens if he dies not on his way to Jerusalem, but he's given the money to the members of the Kohen, the, the Kohen Mishmar, right? Those who are on duty that week. 
and then he dies. And so, meaning the money has been paid, his heirs don't get it, but he hasn't yet brought the guilt offering. The, his heirs cannot take that money out of the hands of the Kohanim, although you might think that they could because he hasn't finished the process to bring the guilt offering. The answer is no, no. Once he gave it to the Kohanim, then he at least fulfilled that part of the plan. Because there's another verse, and again, still in chapter five of the book of Numbers, that you know, anything that the that a person gives to the Kohanim, it will it becomes the property of the Kohanim um, without any uh, recourse. Like no gives these no vaccines, he can't take it back. The the Kohen can't give it back to the family. Now, what happens? We've got a robber who gives the money to the the watch, right? The, we've talked about this in the past, but not for a long time, about how the Kohanim all over the country were divided up into watches, and they took their turns, you know, twice over the course of a year, basically, right, to make it simple. Um and so he gives the money to the to the watch of Yehoyariv, that's one of the Kohanim families, and then he gives the Asham, um, I'm sorry, he gives the, yeah, he gives the Asham to Yedayah, to the priestly family of the next watch. So what happens if he first gives the the asham, the korban, the sacrifice to Yehoyariv, and then he gives the money to Yedaya, meaning that the animal is designated for the offering it, during the time that he pays the money back to begin with, not back, to the Kohanim. Then the Yedaya people will offer the sacrifice that was brought to the Yehoyariv people. But if it's no longer considered to be like, you know, waiting to be offered, so to speak, because Yehoyariv has already sacrificed it, then, but, but he hasn't given the money yet, right? Then he has to go back, bring another guilt offering. And the claim is, or the position of the mission is that if you bring the stolen item to the Kohanim before you bring the guilt offering, then, <laughs> then you haven't really done what you need to do. You have to bring the guilt offering. Um, wait, let me make sure I've got this right. Let me, I'm going to read it again, Mishnah. You have to first return the, the item or the value of the item, in this case to the Kohenim, and then you bring the, the, the sacrifice. If you bring the sacrifice before you bring before you return the gzela, the thing that was stolen, then you haven't really done the job of you know making good on the fact that you that you stole. However, in the event that he returns or pays the value of the principal, but he didn't yet give the additional fine of the one-fifth payment, that's not going to get in the way of the carbon of the sacrifice working as a sacrifice. So what we have here is a very practical, you know, you know, how a thief may atone in the event that he cannot go back to the original owner because the original owner has died and how he like all the nooks and crannies of how this is going to work with the watches the the rotation of the coining families um keeping in mind that at the time of the mishnah this was no longer happening these families were not doing these jobs there was no beta mcdash i find it as always fascinating when the beta mcdash becomes 
so practically discussed in a way that, you know, was really actually theoretical. And and it's really detailed, this Mishnah. Yeah. Yeah. The watches and the families in particular. Yeah. And the names of the families. It's very, very detailed. All right. I'm going to move on to uh, some of the discussion that we have on this particular Mishnah. Um, and this is really going to be our last Mishnah of the Parak, because uh, we're going to end the Parak tomorrow. And Rava asks a question here. By Rava. So are Kohanim allowed to divide their shares of the robbed property of a convert against shares of the robbed property of a convert? In other words, can a Kohen basically say to another Kohen, you take my share of this convert's robbed property and I'll take your share of a different convert's robbed property, Okay. So, again, this is one of these cases where, like, how many converts were being robbed, right? Like, how often <laughs> was this happening? I would like to think not often. And so what's the basis of this? Although your data, I got to yeah. say, they're a vulnerable population. Meaning- That's fair. That's interesting. That's an interesting point to make, right? Like, we know that converts are vulnerable, and so maybe this- It really doesn't mean a mugging, right? Right, right. And the fact that even the Torah had to go out of its way that this is a special halakha around Kohanim is interesting. So uh, what is the basis of this question? Do we say that when the Torah says, calls the return property an asham, right? Ma asham, just as w- with the asham offering, the Kohanim can't divide the asham offering one, one asham against the other asham. Afgezel, so too with the actual rob property itself when it's, for, when it's you know, paid back, they can't divide the raw property of one convert against the raw property of another convert. Or maybe we'll say, right, the meat of the ashram is different. Right? The raw property of a convert is a monetary position of the condom, and therefore they can exchange it, right? It's harder to exchange, you know, meat. There's something different between the meat of a korban versus money. So the Gemara says, Hadar Pashta, right? After Rava says this, right? He resolved it, okay? Asham Kari Rahmana, when the Torah calls the Rab property an, an Asham. And so therefore, it means by calling the money, money part an Asham or, or the Rab property an Asham, it's basically saying you have to treat it like the Asham. And then they have another version of what Rava says, Rav Achaba Reza Rava, Matni Le Baheja, Rav Achaba, the son of Rava, taught Rava's original statement, right? Not as a question, but basically as a as a ruling. Amarava, Kohanim ain Gezel Hager Gezel Right? Rava says Kohanim can't divide the shared their shares in a rob property of one convert against the shares of rob property of another convert. My time with the reason Asham Kari Rahmana, because of the way they want to read this, you know, the word Asham. Now they'll have another inquiry by Rava. By Rava, Kohanim Kegezel Hager Yoshin Havu. When we talk about the raw property of a convert, are the Kohanim considered like the convert's heirs? And I love this as a, like, in other words, because the convert didn't have heirs, we give it to the Kohanim, are they now like his heirs? Or is this considered to be uh, that they are basically uh, getting a, a, a gift, okay? Uh, so this is, you know, so now we need to explain, what's, why do we need to know? Like, what's the difference between this? So it's relevant to a case where somebody robs chametz for a convert and then Pesach passes over it before he returns it to the Kohanim. 
If you say the Kohanim are like the heirs, then this chametz that they inherited, right? Um, and the robber basically, you know, fulfills whatever obligation he has by returning to the Kohanim, despite that it's basically, it's worthless, right? Because you're not allowed to use chametz that Pesach passed over. But if you say that it's a gift that they're receiving, then when the Torah told the robber to give a gift to the Kohanim in order to do atonement for the sin that he did, then when he returns the chametz, right, it's like he didn't give anything to Afra Ba'almahu because it's like earth, right? And we know we say to Afra Ba'almahu, um, that's something that we say when we talk, you know, when we, uh, uh, after we do B'tikat Chametz, right? And we, you know, say afterwards that any Chametz we didn't see, it's Afrad to Alma, right? It's not worth anything. And so therefore, the only way for him to make atonement is by paying the Kohanim the amount that the Chametz was worth at the time of the theft. So I thought this was a great question. What's going to happen from here is, is that, you know, uh, so Rabbi Zera comes and he actually has a different way of looking at this. Rabbi Zera by Hacha. Right, even if you want to say that the Kohanim are considered to be getting a gift, we have no question about this about whether or not a robber can give them chametz after Pesach, right? Because maybe he can only fulfill his obligation this way. Because once it's, it's robbed property, this is a gift that the Torah says the robber has to give the Kohanim. Rather, what we want to ask about is whether the Kohanim are the converts' heirs or are they gift recipients. So he says maybe this isn't the right uh, scenario to ask this question about because he says even if they're considered a gift recipient, he doesn't have to give them, the robber doesn't have to give anything of value, right? Because the Torah says it's only that his gift to the Kohanim is just the robbed property. And yes, it may be worthless chametz, but that's what the Torah says. So Rabbi Zera doesn't like this nafkamina. He has a different one, and he says, "What is it? Kigon shenaflulo eser behimot kigezel hager." So let's say it's a case where ten there were ten animals uh, that were the converts' robbed property, and it was given to the kohen. Mechayev lafrushay mine maser olo. Does he have to celebrate? Does he have to separate maser behema? Right. So we know every ten animals. You need to separate a uh, master behema from, right? The type of the animals, okay? Or not. Yoshin Hayu, if they're considered to be heirs, right? Ba'amar right? And we know from a Mishnah, right? Kanub Tfisata Bait Chayvim. If heirs acquired animals in their estate, they have to separate the animal type. Odimel Mekabli Matanotape. But if you say that it's a gift recipient, Utna, we learned in a different Mishnah. Right, somebody who buys untyped animals, or somebody who was given untyped animals as a gift, they don't have to give master behema my. So we have basically, so what, what would the halacha be? So we have two different nafkaminas, one of Rav, one of Rabbi Zera. Okay, the Gemara from here is going to continue to try to uh, to explain this, and so it says as follows: Toshma, come and learn from the following phrase. There were 24 gifts that were given to Aaron and his sons. And all of them were given as a generalization, specification generalization, and assault covenant. In other words, 
the psukim that give out the 24 Kohanic gifts, which is in Bamidbar chapter 18, verses 8 through 19. They begin with a general statement, then it specifies the specific gifts, and then it concludes again with a general um, statement. And the verse that concludes all of this basically says, I've given to you and your sons and your daughters, and gave with you, um, you know, this, this eternal gift. And it's an eternal salt covenant before Hashem for you and your and your offspring. So what we see is that there's this generalization, specification, generalization, right? Cloud, prat, cloud, and the salt covenant. So the salt covenant basically means a breed that is eternal like salt, because salt never spoils, okay? So kol mikamim. this teaches us that one who upholds these gifts, ki'ilu mekayim klal upratu klal ubritamel. It's considered as though he upheld this generalization, specification, generalization, and the salt covenant. So it means it's like he upheld the entire Torah, right? This is what he did. Kola overlam, and anybody who transgresses them, ki'ilu over al klal prat uklal ubrit mel. It's as if he transgressed this generalization, specification, generalization, and the salt covenant. And these are the 24 gifts. Esther Bamidash, 10 of them were granted to the Kohanim in the temple. In other words, they were things that had to be consumed in the temple courtyard. Barbabi Yerushalayim and four were in eaten in Yerushalayim. The Esther Begvulim and the last 10 could be anywhere in the provinces. Esther Bamidash, what are the four in the Mikdash? Chatat Behema, right? Chatat Ha'ov, so the sin offering of an animal, the sin offering of a bird. Asham Badai, the definite Asham, that Asham Talui. We won't go through what all these are, but if you, you know, you should spend a little bit of time going through this. Vizif Shlamim Sibor, the meat of the Camino Shlamim offering, the Log Shemin Shel Mitzorah, the Log oil of a Mitzorah, Umutara, Mer, the remainder of the Omer offering, Ushte Halacham, the two loaves offering, the Lacham Apanim, the Panim bread, Ushiarem and Achod, and the remainder of the Mincha offering. Uh, so those are the 10 that they have to consume in the temple courtyard. Barbavi Yerushalayim, four gifts were given to them in Yerushalayim. Habichora, the firstborn animals. Barbikorim, the bikorim, which was the first fruits of the seven species. Bahamoram Nazir, the portion separated from the Toda offering of and, and the Nazir's ram. The Orot Kodshim, the hides of the Kodshim. And now these are the 10 that they were allowed to consume in the provinces, meaning in Eretz Israel. Truma, right? So that's the portion that had to be taken from any produce. Utrumat uh, Maser, Trumat Maser. So that was the portion of Truma that was taken from what the lady was given from the Maser. The Chala Chala, right? That was what you had to take from your bread. The Reshit Agaz, the first of the shearings. Bahamatanot, and gift portions of slaughtered animals. Upijan Abin, the redemption of the firstborn. Upijan Petaracham, the redemption of the firstborn donkey. Uste Achuza, the consecrated ancestral field that was sold by the temple treasurer. Uste Harmim, and a Cherem field. Uh, so that is, uh, uh, you know, if you basically have, you know, that, that's sort of its own interesting thing, but somebody who declares his field Cherem, you give it to the Kohanim. The Gezel Hagar, the robbed property of a convert, which is what we're talking about. The Kakari Mihit Matnana. But the point here is the Brysa lists the robbed property of a convert as a gift. So we have the answer. It's straight out in a brisa. So we learn from this. It's the Kohanim. This is considered, they're considered gift recipients. And so the Gemara basically says, So therefore, you could either look at Rava or Rabbi Zera about what the Naftamina is by saying it's a Matana, but it's explicit from a brisa 
that it is a mata'a. So I think this whole area of halakha, the specific case of the convert is very interesting. And Anne, I kind of like what you said, that maybe this is a particular vulnerable group and that's why, um, uh, you know, and that's why, uh, you know, um, we have this, uh, you know, this particular halakha and these specific verses that are dedicated to this uh, situation. I think it's also interesting that the convert comes up as a as a personality, as a figure, right, in society, very much in the context of the Beit HaMikdash, in the context of the temple. I feel like, well, of course. I mean, that does make sense if you think about it. Somebody who's going to join the Jewish people is also going to be, you know, now participating in temple worship, including specific sacrifices that he would bring and so on. But on the other hand, I kind of think of it as like, you know, where do we most are we most likely to have converts? Maybe I and again, this is some bias or concocted, you know, presumption on my part. But you know, I feel like in a more metropolitan setting where people, you know, interact and people can be exposed to different religions like Judaism, you know, and come to join. And where I don't necessarily think of that as a matter of temple worship because because nowadays we don't have any temple worship, right? So anybody coming to Judaism is not coming because of the temple aspect of things. So it's just a personal sidebar, but I, I do find it interesting. Yeah, I, you know, and uh, I'm curious to see how they're going to wrap this particular Mishnah up, which we'll see by tomorrow. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.